Welcome to the YPAR podcast, a project of the Youth Research Lab at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. In the YPAR podcast, youth participatory action research practitioners discuss the ethical dimensions of conducting YPAR. In our podcast, we explore issues of co-leading YPAR projects, building relationships, power dynamics, and sharing our work together. The Youth Research Lab is located in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. community-based intervention is accessibility. It's liberation, it's movement, it's shifting conversations, it's pushing discourse without having to go through all the red tape of like, of an academically uh, approved research project. Welcome everyone. My name's Naima and I'm the co-host of the YPAR podcast. I'm a YPAR practitioner and a graduate assistant at the Youth Research Lab. Today's episode is with a youth-based group. We're featuring Lil Sis, a grassroots, youth-led, youth-focused artist resource center. Lil Sis is made up of youth who are queer, not queer, racialized, living in Toronto and the greater Toronto area, artists, and many other things. Our conversation today is between myself and Lilsa's team members, Alma Ahmed, Susanna Maharaj, Ryan Sayed, Belul Kadan, and Camila Epong. During COVID-19, Lilsa's has been providing a lot of online programming. So in this conversation, we're going to be discussing What does it mean to be a queer, racialized, youth artist organization based in Regent Park? What is the importance of community-based research? And how does Lilsa's branding challenge heteronormativity and masculinity in the Toronto art scene? This conversation was recorded online on Zoom. And with that, let's jump in. Uh, my name is Alma. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the social media lead for Lil Sis. My name is Rayanne. I, am, I use she, her pronouns, and I am the workshop and open mic lead for Lil Sis. My name is Susanna. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the admin and resources lead for Lil Sis. Hi, my name is uh, Baylul, she, her pronouns, and I also am the open mic and workshop lead for Lil Sis. Hi, my name is Camila. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the coordinator of LILSIS. So I'm so excited to chat with you all today. I would love if you could, uh, if we could get started by um, telling me what LILSIS is all about. All right, I got caught out, so let me go ahead. (laughs) 
So we are little sis. Uh, so our little tagline is that we are little sis. We are a grassroots nonprofit organization. We're based in Regent Park um, and we provide performance opportunities and workshops for BIPOC and LGBTQI plus youth um, in Toronto and the GTA in general, hoping to expand in the future. Um, but yeah, that's what we do. Uh, due to COVID, we initially started out as an open mic, again, based out of Regent Park in Hummingbird way back in want to say 26 2015 2016 2015 2015 there we go in 2015 uh so yeah we were doing monthly open mics uh, at some point that's uh turned into us leading research on experiences of BIPOC and LGBTQ plus artists in Toronto and the GTA to understand like what barriers were there um how to tackle those and so we came up with our research and shortly after we got a grant and so we're able to morph into little sis and we started, we, that's also coincided with COVID. So unfortunately we had to let go of the open mic component um, so far, but at the moment we're going hard with the workshops and we've had three so far. And so the workshops are very much focused on kind of like, not so much on like developing your art craft, but kind of all the skills outside of that, that is especially relevant for BIPOC and LGBTQ plus artists related to essentially like how do you stand up for yourself as an artist? How do you make sure that you're getting respected, that you're getting paid appropriately? Um, you know, how to clap back, et cetera, how to build a portfolio, all of those things. So kind of those skills that are just all around being an artist and that help you succeed in your work in that way. And that is us so far. Awesome. Um, and so is your work, so are all of you from Regent Park and is your work mainly concentrated in Regent Park or are, are all of you from the GTA and your work is spreads across the GTA? So we are actually all from Regent Park. Um, well, we're all initially from Regent Park, I'll say that. So some of us have for like, personally, I've moved out of Regent Park. Uh, you know, Cami no longer is in Regent Park. Uh, some of us are outside based for school. Um, like for schooling like I know Alma lives in Regent Park but she's just she goes to Queens so she is not there right now um Susanna you're in Regent Park though um I'm actually like down the street I'm like from Bleecker but you know I went what? to school at Jarvis and everything which is right there I know that. <laughs> oh my god um so yeah but we're all like very we all like originated from there or we live very close to there still have very close ties to there through school and whatever so yes awesome awesome and so your work must have been pretty involved in the community right what did that um uh what does that mean for you to be able to do community-based work I love how your work also has that lens where it is community-centered um, and it takes into account um, what is going on in the community what the needs of the community are and you're able to deeply engage I think one uh, need that we learned in our community and just like because we're a youth arts platform and we target normally ages between like 14 to 29 or whatever somebody thinks a youth is if you're 50 and you believe you are youthful go for it i believe you um and so because our stuff is youth-led we noticed with our open mic beforehand that there was a lack of performing arts spaces for people that wanted to start off their arts in the first place and so we were like there are so many people that are like i want to be a singer i want to be a spoken word artist i just want to play my guitar in front of people and show them 
what I can do. And also within Regent Park, there are so many other resources that foster art in the first place. There's Art Heart, there's Regent Park School of Music. There are so many other resources. So so we were like, we have all these resources, but no one knows how to, sh like, mostly. I'm not going to speak on behalf of everybody, but, like, we don't have a space that people can perform in or just, like, an op like just a space, like, a safer space. And so by creating Hummingbird Open Mark in the first place, we were like, we're going to get that out of the way. It was literally, like, with a live band. You had a backup, sing like backup singer ability if you needed it. Like, if you wanted to show off your own song, you could. If you just wanted to speak like a poem about or like a spoken word piece about like your art or any issues you were facing about your mental health about racism around the world oppression any like any topic was open and the audience was just such a like it was just a it was a great vibe the audience was welcoming every single type of art so i think one of them was just encouraging and having a space for youth artists especially beginners to come in and like just start to perform and learn how to perform and then with the grant money that we have now we're like how can we use that and how can and like with the grant money and the research report we were finding we found other issues that like youth artists were facing so we're like okay we have all these resources within Lilisys how can we give back to youth artists to LGBTQI plus artists to racialized artists how can we give that back so I think that is like the main motivational aspect of little sis i would say yeah i i love that i think there's such um a lack of youth spaces um within a lot of communities um and i think it's so important and it's so wonderful that you created that like you created a space for community for young people to come together and also in a way that centers the arts when we live in a society and an educational system where you know we can't foster our true creative potential um and we can engage in that type of skill and intelligence and creativity um alma really highlighted that well especially the piece around like the lack of youth art spaces if you are younger than 19 you're not perform. you're not practice like the way where people cut their teeth i've been in the industry for 12 years now where you cut your teeth are on open mic stages but open mic stages are in bars <laughs> or if you're performing like it's in a venue that's a licensed liquor venue and so if you are not the age of majority you don't have that spot to really like test out your stuff and there's only rise as the are other a long-standing like youth open mic which is in scarborough um and then there's kind of like pockets of stuff and like youth performance festivals and stages but there's not consistent youth art spaces um where which is where this you know comes from as well as the fact that there were no oh there were no art spaces that focused on live music and provided the opportunities to perform with live music. That was in only again in like open, they had like live open mic bands, but again, you had to be 19 plus, you had to go to Kensington Market on like a Sunday night. I used to drive, I used to get on the go bus from Brampton and travel two and a half hours just to go to the open mic when I was 16, 17, just so I could start practicing. So when I came of age and was in region, we were like, like that's unreasonable. <laughs> we need spaces where young people can go, you know, and practice. But the other piece I wanted to really bring in that I think is very unique about having this in Regent is that without like advertising as such, the open mic became a spot that was a mix of 
um, queer and trans people, as well as people who are straight and like, or not, not visibly out, um, who are but largely racialized. So like largely black, brown, Asian um, youth, and then largely youth who were also queer, but it was never labeled as such. And I think it just organically happened because the band, when we first started organizing, like I myself identified publicly as queer. Um, and so, and other folks in the bands did as well. And so people would, we would kind of attract this kind of melange of people, which in Toronto period, you don't get a lot of, but in Regent, as far as I'd known by that point, there was no formal programming for queer trans youth. And the misconception is that there are no queer trans youth in region. Very large misconception. I would have other community leaders tell me when I was trying to like support queer programming in region, they'd be like, they're not here. This is a community of like, you know, we're Margie people of color. There's no, and religious and X, but there's no, there's no queer kids here. And I'd be like, that's, a lie because <laughs> I know for facts that there are, they're just not being reached. Um, and so that is another really unique aspect of, of Lil Sis, I think, in that like it's not explicitly a like queer program, but we get a lot of queer um, youth who are coming to access uh, programs. So one of the things I know about Lil Sis is that y'all had actually completed a research project close to the beginning of your formation, I believe. So I would love to hear more about what that project was about, uh, how you went about doing it, what you found. Totally. So yeah, we did a community-based research report, meaning that it was not a research project that was like based out of a school or out of like an institute. Um, it was myself, um, members and like partners of the Lil Sis team. So that's including members who like aren't necessarily, people who are not necessarily member, like staff members, but were allied with the project. Um, and we just wanted to get a, an understanding or not even understanding, because most of us were queer artists of color, um, nearly everyone on the project. We really wanted to have something documented, like experiences documented. And even though we weren't like a big institution, it was just a group of us who were artists. We wanted to have some kind of like, hey, like we just want to have this written and out in the universe that these experiences are happening and that we have recommendations to make the uh, to make things better for queer artists of color. And so what we did was do a call out for young queer artists, queer and trans artists, um, mostly performing arts, um, but some also like textile artists and stuff like that, and to get together. And so we ate food together um, and we recorded conversations on our experiences in the art scene in Toronto. And so we did two groups, um, an hour conversation each over like rice and chicken. <laughs> and we recorded it on our phones and we had some questions, but most of it was just free flowing conversation. And then a smaller group of us got together and transcribed all the conversations 
And we went together through all those transcriptions and themed common experiences as well as outliers, like stuff that weren't caught, like was not common or things that kind of stood out. So once we did that and we analyzed it, we put it into a document where um, a couple people wrote, kind of put it, put the transcription into like actual text and like copy. Awesome. And what would you say were the main findings of um, the research? So there is several that had come up. Um, one of them that was one of the most ones that we like saw first and were like, yeah, this is definitely a thing was the artists feeling like they couldn't be their whole selves when they enter performing art spaces. So like I feel like if I'm in a space that's like, say an arts project or program dedicated to like artists of color, I can be an artist of color, but I can't be like a gay artist of color. Like I got to tone that down kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And then um, another finding that had come up was the grant experience. That was one that I definitely resonated with too, because for a lot of us, we felt like we had to really fetishize and like exploit our trauma to get money of like, we know that's what these funders want to see. We know that like funders really get off on like trauma and like pain porn was a, was a uh, term that came up a few times. And so that was something we discussed of like how we felt like we had to like essentially shuck and jive sometimes for money, but we would do it because at least we would know we get the money and we can do what we needed to do. Um, and so that was something that had come up. And so you mentioned that this was community-based research, you know, it was not done by an institution. Um, and given that you are a grassroots community organization, what was your motivation for doing research in the first place? Because when we think about research, we associate it with, you know, a university and academic institution. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things. One, I think that, as I was saying earlier, there's no, from what I could find, there was no research on this population. Um, and why I found that, I guess, provocative that it didn't exist was that like, for a industry and and city and like country really that really loves to say that they're diverse and like multicultural and for the music industry because that's my kind of positioning as a musician you really love to like hype up marginalized artists for like cool points and like social points and like because it's like sexy but we don't actually have structured um support systems in many cases to actually support them to have sustainable and like safe livelihoods as artists um and so that was one thing i'm like i want something documented so at least it exists and it could be pointed to and referenced if someone ever needs to like make a case of why having, you know, 
spaces for artists of color is important for why having grant applications that are accessible and not just like text essay only application based style um, to have to make a case for why we need better spaces amongst like venues and like for for venue promoters to agree to understand to to study and like sit with anti-oppression education and like implement that into their practice into their venues type of deal so really just wanted that to exist period because it didn't exist um yeah 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 amazing and and why do you think community-based research is important it's accessible um it's i mean (laughs) it's not like an easy thing to just wake up and be like i'm gonna get research done by university of toronto and i'm gonna walk in there and say they need to do some research on this because i said so like that's not gonna happen you need to be in there and like whatever getting a phd or have someone who's going to vouch for you and partner with them in some case whereas this was literally like okay let's get together and talk (laughs) and then let's document it and like do it ourselves and yeah it's not academically like whatever vouched but it's still a conversation that's documented there's still truth in it there's still experiences that are really important in it so let's do it and now now it exists and just like and the fact that it exists alone makes a shift and so yeah like community-based intervention is accessibility it's liberation it's movement it's shifting conversations it's pushing discourse without having to go through all the red tape of like of an academically uh approved research project amazing amazing I am also um, interested to hear about your relationships with um, the people who who come to your programming. Um, so I'd love to hear about the the relationships you have formed or the the culture you have formed with people who attend your workshops, come to your programming, or even you know engage with you on social media. That's a really interesting question I think is especially starting to come out now since we've been like kind of on hiatus for a bit and just started coming back with workshops over the last few months. But there's been some really interesting conversations around our branding. I'm going to start it from that that point and other people can jump on. I know Alma, you, we've had quite a few conversations around this. Um, but one thing that was like something that I think people have we've come into is like an assumption of who we are and what we do and who comes because of our branding. And I think our branding is very different from most arts groups, especially in Toronto. Uh, And I, I'm, I won't say any names, but, um, 
something that people have literally emailed us about have been people being like, we love how colorful and how like boldly, like a vibrance. And some people have described this as femme. They're like, it's like boldly femme in a space in Toronto that's very, very much centers masculinity, very much centers like neutral tones and like black and brown as like the color layout or like black and white and like other neutral stays away from a lot of like bright vibrant things and like that's been the thing that we have come up and I won't go into all the stories because I'm sure Alma <laughs> Alma has some tales to tell but that has been really interesting and like who comes out just based off of the type of colors that we use on our website or on our uh, Alma's uh, Instagram posters that she makes for our workshops. Like just that alone says so much about how people see and categorize and judge things. So yeah. To add on to what Cami said about our branding, I've like noticed it firsthand within like our participants as well. So for our Show Me What You're Working With workshop, we had one participant who saw, who registered, and he, ident he identified as, like, male, and he was one of the only participants there, and he was, like, okay, and he saw that the rest of the participants were either female-identifying or just non-gender identifying people, um, and so he messages me privately on the Zoom, and he's like, oh, um, is this just, like, a female-only event? Like, is this, like, did, like am I invited here like am I like allowed to be here am I taking up the space of somebody else and I was like no like you're not like don't worry about it like this was open to everybody and I brought it up during our meeting afterwards and I was like this is just so funny to me and then me and Cammy had a conversation afterwards we're like I like and one of my concerns was like do you think it's bad that we're targeting like our bright and bold colors or our colors that are more feminine or whatever are targeting like not a male audience and i realized that like the toronto scene the toronto art scene in general prioritizes masculinity in the first place it prioritizes minimalism in the first place so um our little page is always going to be maximalist it is always going to follow maximalist trends um <laughs> yeah like how you said hype beast ass clout waste man scene like it is fully like that in the toronto art scene right now and so we're gonna we're gonna keep the color always always gonna keep the color no i was just gonna say like that that whole story alma said about that one guy that felt you know um little sis just by the colors in itself is challenging the status quo like who said that certain colors belong to certain uh, types of people no the colors is just a way to emphasize our vibrance and our boldness and what we stand for as little sis. Um, so yeah, I believe that the the colors in itself, besides our messaging, is challenging the status quo, and um, I love that for us. That's so important um, in a society that centers masculinity, you know? Yeah, like in, I love what you said about, you know, even minimalism. Like I, I heard someone um, explain how minimalism actually, um, they were giving an analysis of minimalism that showed how minimalism is tied to like capitalism. Um, and I was like, that is so on point you know, uh, it's tied to capitalist values, like math, uh, efficiency, you know, um, and I love how you are 
um, disrupting space to say, you know, no, these femme colors, that's actually normal. And it's okay for everyone to participate in that. It's not just, you know, a female only, you know, women only space. Uh, just because we're using femme colors, but we're we're kind of interrupting the status quo dominant um, behavior uh, t- tendency within the space. Another ad- a story that happened is when we were first running our open mic, a peer of mine in the music industry came came out and. At, towards the end of the night, he came up to me. He's like, okay, so like, this is an open mic for like, for queers. There's mostly queers here. And I was like, no, like we never labeled it as such. We never, we don't check. I mean, I don't know. I don't check as and ask as people come in, just people who come who feel welcome in this space come. And so like, there's certainly a, an air of like, well, sis is like, this or like it's not it's not it's something different and literally that's because we use the colors like yellow pink blue and green <laughs> like like that's like that's that's the only thing that we do we we say BIPOC we have queer trans people on our like our larger team myself and like we have many who come but we also have just have a large racialized population but literally the only thing that we like do is, is use yellow green pink and blue and like people are like Duh. like what does it mean can i come like there's flowers on this i'm like are you scared of flowers like it's fine just come through it's it's very interesting it's very interesting to have this sort of um i guess physical or, or like visibility with these colors within the toronto landscape because yeah a lot of a lot of people are just very hype beast and again very masculine centered. Yeah. Um, and who who responds this way? I'm curious. Is the response from, you know, the professionals, the professional artists who are like maybe non-racialized? Is the response from them different um, than the response you get from people in community racialized queer people or are responses all over the place? Because, you know, sometimes we can internalize that stuff ourselves. Anyone who wants to come in and, and like add to this, I'd say that's a good question, especially because we're only ending our first, we started as Little Sis in July. So it hasn't even been a full 12 months. And we only started offering public programming as of March. So like, we're still very much young in our existence as Little Sis and providing these, uh, providing workshops. Um, the open mic ran for a lot longer and we, the response to that, I think that was just really a mix. We had like five-year-olds, we had 60-year-olds, we had like, Remember the cowboy, the white cowboy from like America. He came from America. Like it's for an open mic. That's the really funny part is there's like we've had such a huge amount of people come. Um, and the response to it is so strong in strong in a way that like people are coming that person who came my peer was like, this is a queer event. He was like still down to come, but he was like, this is my, my observation. And this person was a, a cis man and a straight cis man. So I was like, yeah, I think I'm like, 
anything that was like off of that, you're like, this is queer, <laughs> like whatever. Um, so I think the response to the open mic has just been like, the quality was so strong and it was so unique because we at that time when we started were the only youth centered space that was offering professional live musicians to play your music. No one else was doing that at that time. Um, that like people were coming just from all over the place. So the response was just like, uh, both it was peer members who were saying things of like, this is, this is queer, this is different. And then some, we do get some emails sometimes. Like I got an email from like Sick Kids Hospital like a month ago that was like, we see that you have, you know, reached into, you know, queer and trans youth. We want to study them um, for a medical study we're doing. And I was like, not at all our, what we do. <laughs> so this is really weird. And considering the like, medicalization and like whatever has, has been done to queer and trans work I'm like this is that's fucking weird <laughs> so like there I don't I, there's like a you can always tell when it's real and you can tell when it's like fetishizing um but again it hasn't even been a full year yet so there's lots left to kind of learn for us of like who how people see us I guess but I'll, I'll leave it open as well for us of the team to come in because that's a good question I'm, I'm not really sure if that was the best answer of like how people respond and the different kinds of people, but yeah. I think for the most part, branding wise, like our audience likes the content. Like there's like, it, there's a reason why everybody, like the people that we follow, like our engagement, like I'm talking about like, not just like likes and comments. I'm talking about like the shares. I'm talking about the saves on an Instagram post. Like, I can, when I like check the analytics and stuff, like I can always see that. And there's a reason why our branding works because people are using it. Like our followers, like, like are sharing our content. Um, I want but like nobody on Instagram has ever like questioned why our content is the way it is. I feel like most of the experiences have ever like have been realistically from men who are like, um, my masculinity is too fragile for this content. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Not to say that like all men have fragile masculinity, but I'm just saying it was mainly people with fragile masculinity were like, uh, is this for me? Yes, it's for you. You can you're you can come to a workshop with <laughs> you can come to a workshop with uh flowers on it and it's absolutely okay. But yeah. On a similar note to that, like I feel like the aesthetic of it all too, because again, like Lil says, is about creating like safer spaces for folks. And so we do have our main audience. And I feel like if anything, our aesthetic like works to keep it not gatekeep but like the people that respond to it are the people that we want in general you know what I mean so the people that respond to it like the people who are like um I don't know if I can like it's and like it's so femme that it is this for like you know what you're probably homophobic and transphobic and xyz we never wanted you anyways so it like it works in that way to just keep them out like they don't it wasn't for it wasn't for you like you know what it's the minimalism and the dark colors and whatever that speaks to you and that's for you your community is <laughs> your community is everywhere actually this is a small niche unfortunately but it's a small niche and so the people that it attracts are the people that we want and I feel like that's also the beauty behind that aesthetic that we have is like it does the outreach for us almost and it like filters through people for us
in terms of people that attend and people that we want as an audience? Um, I was also just going to say that, um, and like just our branding, everything, like the colors, all of that stuff, it's different. Like it's it's completely different than I've seen like other organizations or whatever do. And so I feel like the way that we're creating something that hasn't been out there, there's been people out there like looking for something like this and they haven't been able to find it. So that's why we do attract like literally a specific kind of like exactly who we want to attract, like, you know, because they're looking for these resources that they weren't able to find elsewhere. So it, it just kind of works itself out in that way. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the YPAR podcast. I learned so much from Wilsis. Some of the things I'm reflecting upon include the power of creating spaces that are so desired and needed, but not present for queer and racialized youth. How community-based research means accessibility and liberation. And how Lilsis challenges capitalism through its maximalist aesthetic and culture of care.